Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. Today, I've got my friends with me, Danielle. Oh, hey, this is Danielle Van Hook from the Alden Theater in McLean, Virginia. Mr. Maynard. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the borders between Iowa and Illinois. The Catherine Miller. <laughs> hey, everybody. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. And Mr. Zelmer. I'm Brian Zelmer from KU Presents at Kutztown University. And I'm Josh Benson, kicking it with y'all from Marion, Illinois. Have you guys ever come across a technical writer that just makes you laugh a little bit? Like there's something in it that's just far enough off the wall that just makes you chuckle and go, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Anybody have a story like that? Yeah, I'll start off. Um, we had like one of the biggest divas, and I say that with all due respect in the industry, come through Interlochen when I was in artist services up there. And in the technical writer, they asked for 10 full length mirrors and seven blow dryers. In Traverse City, which is in northern Michigan, where am I going to find 10 full-length mirrors and seven <laughs> blow dryers all at one time? So I'm running around TC looking for this stuff. Found it all at a Big Lots. Big Lots was my savior that day, and I cleaned them out of full-length mirrors and blow dryers. I imagine you setting up like a full surround of the mirrors and the hair dryers just for yourself. <laughs> full immersive experience there. I, I worked with an opera company one time, and... You know, we get the rider in and, and I, again, I was with a university and I wasn't allowed to purchase alcohol and they had some alcohol in the rider. So I crossed it off and sent it and they, they approved it and everything. But apparently the agent never informed the artist and she got one of the opera singers came and she refused to go on stage because her ritual was taking a shot of Jägermeister before she went on stage. And she was <laughs> adamant that she was not going to perform until she had that. And it ultimately got resolved and I won't say how, but, um, uh, it's pretty obvious. She got her gear Meister. <laughs> <laughs> you were at a college campus. I think we can yes. all connect It was those pretty dots. easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've had anything that are like necessarily like funny or, you know, I, I think mostly just things where I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ones that always come to mind is we had one artist. Uh, it was a comedian, relatively popular, who had a custom-made shirt that had to be made for every venue. He didn't wear it. Um, it was just had to be there. Uh, so we were like, yeah, we're, we're not doing that. Same artist also had some very specific custom soaps that they needed. Um, so yeah, nothing like necessarily funny, but just moments where I'm like, no, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, so. Womp womp. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so I work uh, pretty much exclusively in youth and family performances. Literally everyone who works in the youth and family touring industry are all saints. <laughs> um, and it's usually like, yes, please, if you can give us uh, any food, we'll be so happy. And which, listen, we're going to do a whole deep dive on how that just needs to not be an acceptable thing that youth and family artists are worthy <laughs> um, and and deserve all the same things as everybody else. But it's pretty normal to see like a certain brand of water or, you know, something that's like a little bit more specific. So the other day I, I had one that was a very specific brand of tuna and a very specific flavor of that tuna. Um, and I had a pretty intense conversation with our TD about whether or not we would strike it because like, what if the grocery store didn't have that tuna that day? <laughs> Um, and we went back and forth for like more than we should have. 
Um, we struck it, if you were wondering. And then once it came time to it, we did the advance. They actually just would rather order a meal from a grocery store. So that's my tuna story. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite is from a pretty popular jam band. And um, they ask for a well-tempered collie one hour prior to the performance in their dressing room. And it you know, it goes back to what like Like a dog? Yeah. Like a dog collie? Yeah. Like a dog <laughs> okay. collie. But they don't actually want a dog in their dressing room. They just want you to read the writer and ask them about it. If you don't ask them about it, they know you haven't read the writer and they're gonna be they're gonna be like, Hey, call me back when you've actually read but it. But also the bonus if they show up and there's a collie there, <laughs> right? Like, that sounds like something I want in my writer. Especially a well tempered mature collie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Like doggy snuggles all day long. I love it. <laughs> so our guest today is Pat Hazel. Um and he talks a little bit about why it's important to be specific in your writer and actually tell people what you want or need amongst many other wonderful things. He's done a lot in the industry, but he's also been an inspiration for some of us from a podcast standpoint with his podcast, Creativity and Captivity. Here is our interview with Pat Hazel. Hey, this is Pat Hazel, and I am the Chief Creative Officer of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, and the host of the Creativity in Captivity podcast on all platforms. But mostly I'm a fan of the arts and uh, everybody that's involved with this show. Thanks for joining us, Pat. Uh, Brian, thank you for being here as a co-host as well. My pleasure. I wouldn't miss it. Let's start off with just something as straightforward as how did you originally get into the arts in your life? Like, what was that path like for you? Well, I would say that I, first of all, as a viewer, as a kid viewer, I always loved watching anything that was performance related. So we had a magician come to the elementary school. I was all over it. You know, that was exciting to me. I saw a juggler work on the street. I would hang out there. Anything that where somebody was doing some performance, I was enamored by it. Uh, ultimately, going to some theater that my parents had extra tickets for made me start to love stagecraft and producing and other things just from how things got put together because I don't know if it's the facade of show business or what it is, but there's just something about the mechanics of it that I was pretty thrilled by. So when I got into the high school level, my mom encouraged me to get into dramatics or theater. I, I don't know what she said, go to my room until I learn how to act is what she said. <laughs> and I took that to be a compliment. <laughs> and so uh, in high school, I did a few plays and we had a really progressive teacher who let us do some things like he we didn't want to do some old fuddy dud play so he said well what do you want to do we go well we watch the tv show mash we'd love to do that and he said oh let me look into it and there was a movie based on mash and subsequently they had written a play about it so he let us play those characters and while we were rehearsing we said we don't really like it's not as funny as a tv show he said well do you want to rewrite it okay you know like and we kind of stole from the television show but he did let us be involved in the making of the show. And I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, where the Omaha Community Playhouse was a really, really advanced community theater. The performers were mostly community folks that had other jobs, but the theater technicians and the producers and the directors, they were all folks that had Broadway experience or had done stuff on the road. And so they, they really did top-of-the-line productions. And I think the love of it was was built there for the most part. And then for myself, doing stand-up comedy and doing magic took me on stage. And I think in doing that, I realized I didn't really want to do just a one-man thing, that it would be more fun to write stories and put on productions with other people. I, I, for some reason, it's one of those 
habits like drugs where it just keeps getting worse. You just get deeper and deeper involved in the arts. Did you pursue that in college? I did, but I didn't really pursue college. So I had a what I call 90 days same as cash uh, <laughs> kind of college days. I think I went for 18 months and I did do some theater and I did some speech interpretation, but also I did political science, why I don't know. You know, none of that stuff interested me. Well, you're discovering, trying to discover what you wanted to do, right? Well, I didn't, I honestly thought school was supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to get smarter learning something, but I hated it. So I had an opportunity to go to Las Vegas to a contest, a magic contest that was being sponsored by Siegfried and Roy. Oh, wow. And I went and did that. And then I won a con different contest where I got to open for Ronnie Dangerfield. And I was like, I'll go do that. Like wow. I was doing everything I could not to go to college. You mentioned magic. Now, I, I know that you did magic before you did comedy. I'm just curious, though. I don't think I've ever heard what your first trick was that you learned. Oh, that's a perfectly good question. <laughs> well, I did start with a magic kit that was given to me when I was 10 or 11 years old. And there were lots of different tricks in there. But I would say the trick that I did the most or was the most uh, that fooled my dad and, you know, made him chase me around the house was then called the invisible card trick where you don't even have cards and they think of a card and then you find it. And it, he really was genuinely fooled and he, he wanted to know and I was like, nope. Magician never tells a secret. And it was the greatest thing as a kid to have some information greater than your dad could have. Like that was like, this is the ticket. So you got into, you started to get into comedy and uh, you had been into magic. Uh, what, how did you then move forward in comedy at that point? Well, here's what's funny about the transition. My magic act wasn't great. I was okay. Like I could fool you. But the magic wasn't, you know, anything to, you know, write home about. The comedy was the cover, right? So if a trick didn't work, then I would do something funny. And it got to be more comedy than magic. I really enjoyed the audience interplay, which was get a volunteer up and make fun of them and pimp them around a little bit and stuff. And when I made a transition from Omaha, Nebraska to going to California, I decided I better leave the props and the tricks behind because they don't know me yet. So when I go west... If I want to become a stand-up comic, I've got to set this stuff down. And I always had affection for it, and, and I still enjoy variety acts today and work with many people. But that was the thing that really made me change my tune. I still did some prop stuff, but then when I was touring, Jerry Seinfeld asked me to go uh, to Texas, to Dallas, Texas, and he said, um, you don't really need to take the stuff. Like, just get a suit bag and jump on the plane with me. And I thought he was being avuncular, like he was going to, you know, invite me into the world of stand-up. And what I found out later, he didn't want to wait at the luggage for my props. <laughs> so it was kind of a time saver. But he did give me permission to go up and do mm -hmm. straight stand-up. And, you know, I, would, I couldn't lose my job doing it. And it really made me kind of, reapproach my storytelling and how I did things. You've told that story on, on your podcast, uh, Creativity and Captivity. I don't think I ever heard the story about how you and Jerry got connected doing comedy in the first place. Well, he was a big dog in Los Angeles when I got out there. I remember as a kid watching him on The Tonight Show and thinking, man, this guy has a job I'd like. Like, I don't know how you get a job like this, but it seems like you go up there and you talk for seven or eight minutes on The Tonight Show and you got the rest of the day free, right? Like... This was a Tom Sawyer fantasy of a job. And when I did get to L.A., I'm trying to think of how we met. I think it was a place called the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach that is still doing comedy and still has Jay Leno every Sunday night. 
It was a great place. So I think he saw my act there, and he asked me to be an opening act for his one of his early stand-up specials uh, at the Roxy, which was a club in Los Angeles. His first HBO special, maybe it was, called Stand Up Confidential. And at that time, I still was juggling top hats and cutting up people's ties and doing <laughs> all the tricks. And it was a good diversion. It warmed his audience up, but it didn't take away from the jokes and stories he was telling. So at that point, I was kind of just a, a variety act that it was, I would go from the Magic Castle to the improvisation to different places like that. You're a prolific writer. You've written plays and TV series and, and all kinds of things. And I'm just curious how that entered into your life um, because you mentioned that you didn't you didn't find that through schooling and you went into magic and comedy. And when did writing get into the picture? In Los Angeles, it became apparent that w the way to make money was to get on a sitcom staff or even if you were going to be a stand-up for fun, you needed to have co cover your overhead. <laughs> And most of the time, there was performance opportunities that were out of town that paid. The NACA college market was a place, but then you had to be away from L.A. So if you were going to make money in L.A., you kind of had to join somebody else's team. And I had written a play with a partner called Bunk Bed Brothers. So we had a spec script that we could take around to some places. And I hate to mention Jerry's name again, but his show was just <laughs> beginning. So at that point, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David were looking for writers for what was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. That was the pilot they had created together. And my partner, Matt Goldman, and I were the first two to get jobs on that show for Castle Rock based on the strength of the play and the jokes in the play and, of course, their awareness of who we were. So, it, it, I mean, that is the top lottery win from having never written anything to suddenly writing on the show. But remembering that the show wasn't what it what it is today it they were trying to figure out what it was themselves so we were there when the you know theme song was being made and the name of the coffee shop was being made all of that so it was very very early on can we go back even further though because you, you just kind of slid in you wrote bunk bed brothers was that the first thing you wrote like what was the first thing you wrote that actually got purchased or produced or whatever well that was produced but not by someone else so Matt Goldman and I, Matt was uh, in the, involved in Minneapolis area stand-up comedy. There was a small theater there that was at that time called Club Ha Ha, I think, or the Ha Ha Club or something. And they were going to do theater performances or one-person shows. And they had had quite success with Joel Hodgson, who was the guy who went on to make Mystery Science Theater. And he recommended both Matt and I as people they should talk to. Now, we didn't know each other. But we both knew that Joel had recommended us and we had met in a, a party in L.A. And I thought, it's so much harder. Why don't we together write a show where we can each do half of it or something? And we were looking for what we had in common and we both had lots of brothers. And that was kind of where the beginning of Bunk Bed Brothers came. And also a chance to tell stories about your own siblings and get away with it because you could always say, well, that... That wasn't about you. That was about Matt's brothers. You know, like we were kind of using it to tell the truth a little bit, a very competitive thing. And we did it in that small theater and produced it ourselves uh, with the club. And it wasn't really that, I would say, was the place where we got discovered because the Omaha Community Theater had been up on a theater junket in Minneapolis. And they saw in the paper that we were doing this show. And they're like, well, this is original show. Let's go see what this is. And it was on a night that the twins were in the final game of the World Series, and you know it was an audience of like seven people, of which 
four of them were from the Omaha Community Playhouse. And we're not like serious actors. So we're like, this is the biggest turd night of all theater. And we we went through the paces and did the show. And then afterwards, a guy came up to us, it was a director there and said, hey, if you guys will rewrite this into a real play, we'll do it. You know, like, because it was a series of gags and bits of business and brothers competing and Nerf basketball. I mean, it was like watching two 15-year-olds in a room for a night. Like, we didn't have that much structure going on. So they challenged us, and we went around the uh, the corner a little bit with it, and we created a storyline, and we brought the dad in, and we, you know, we I think it became quite a bit better once we had done that. You went on, very obviously at this point, you went and you wrote for Seinfeld, um, and you did that for a few seasons. How did you move on from that to where you're at in the performing arts world today? Well, here's what's interesting. I'm working in Los Angeles. I'm writing in the sitcom business, but I like performing. I like doing stand-up. And it, uh, frustratedly, I was also the studio audience warm-up comedian on the show, which meant that you do some stuff, but it gets interrupted by tape rolling and you know, audience questions and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I still wanted to do some performance. And when we were on a hiatus between... I wrote my own one-man piece, which you're both familiar with, called The Wonder Bread Years. The reason I chose to do that was that with a play like Bunk Bed Brothers that required two other characters and a set and some floating bunk beds and all kinds of... And a pizza delivery guy. And a pizza delivery guy in every city, um, which, by the way, was a real guy. So we, I, I had my differences with the equity uh, actors who kept saying, we argue that could be a, uh, an actor who's good enough to play a pizza guy. We go, well, that's not what's funny. What's funny is we ordered a pizza live from the show, like during the actors call in, in character and order the pizza. It gets delivered. At that time, P Domino's had a 30 minutes or less promotion. So the pizza guy would always come before act two was over. And then <laughs> they would come to the address and they would be delivered to the door of the stage and they would have to take it on stage and we would pull a script out of the drawer that said pizza guy, and then he would have to read lines. So <laughs> it's very, very sophomoric, but I always thought, what a funny gag. You you get to deliver pizza, you get called to the address, and you end up in a Broadway show, like, and you can't get out of it, right? So, I mean, we just kept them there for a few minutes and tipped them with Monopoly money and then sent them off. But uh, it was... <laughs> Uh, it was a highlight every night because the audience goes from, is this a bad actor to, wait a minute, I think this is a real dude who's got a job. What's he doing in this play, you know? So, I mean, that alternative sensibility came from watching the Carol Burnett show when I was a kid, watching Tim Conway crack up Harvey Corman, watching them do something that was a little out of sync. And we really wanted the Bunk Bed Brothers play to be that way. So everywhere there was a funny cue that the audience thought something went wrong was all scripted. Like the needle on the record player wouldn't even get near the record and it would start playing and the audience would crack up thinking we had the worst sound guy in the world. But, you know, I would make that sound guy miss that cue. If he got even close, I'd, I'd say, I'll fire you if you make this look right. Like you've got to, it's got to be bad. Anyway, I took the Wonder Bread years out on the road. That was the one man version of this. And at that time, eBay was really just coming into style. Like people could go back and buy their childhood, their best favorite toy. They could get the cereal they had. You know, you just type in whatever level of quality you wanted on your Rock'em Sock'em robots and how much money you had and you could get it. 
So I thought there was something about that nostalgia boom, and that's what Wonder Bread was, was a kind of a salute to baby boomerdom and a, a look at our sense of wonder and where we lost it and how we get it back. And I thought it was going to be a short-lived couple of years that that show would run, but it didn't. It never occurred to me that the audience would age at the same rate as the material ages. <laughs> and so the theater goer that liked that content, the baby boomer was suddenly moving into an area where they had a little more income, which meant that the theaters were looking for that audience or they were trying to get folks that weren't dying off on their subscription series and bring new faces in. I mean, I'm talking to you from an art standpoint that sometimes you put on a, a on Golden Pond show, you know, it's not going to get people 25 to 45 to come out to it. So I think my shows were falling into this kind of alternative new American theater. And I did like them to be hybrids so that they weren't all stand up, that they had some scenic element or some theater or some multimedia sense. And I, for me, that's just a better way to, to spend a night in the theater, even though there's some hilarious standups that can do it with a microphone and a bottle of water. But I, I like the I like all of the little parts of theater. I like sound effects and light cues and projection. It's all fun to me. So how did you you say you you toured that show around? How did you get that show to tour? How did you set up your tour? Did you have an agent at that point, or did you start your own agency and start your own organization? How did how did getting into the business end of it like that work for you? I used to rent the theaters. I four walled them, paid to have a space. And I would stay in one spot as best I could. And I got an invitation from uh, the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And they had a Johnny Carson Theater, which was a small black box theater. And they had asked me about uh, doing it there. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll talk to the local TV station and see if I can film it. Because I thought at that point, two years, this thing's going to be over. I may as well capture it on film. And the local uh, PBS affiliate said, hey, we could do this for our pledge drive. Let's, yeah, we'll shoot it, but you have to pay to film it. So I used the ticket sales from the audience to pay for the taping and then let them use it as a pledge drive for their event. And then I had this special, essentially, that if I could sell it, I could get my money back. But it was a pretty break-even situation because the audience essentially kick-started this with their ticket purchase, and the prize was they got to see the show. In doing that, one of the presenters at the theater said to me, "Are you? You should take this around to the theater market." I go, "What's that?" You know, and he goes, "Oh, you know, there's this arts conference, and and the one I went to was in St. Paul. The first one I went to, it was an Arts Midwest, which I loved. Love the Arts Midwest, folks. It was a I got an alternative showcase, which means." Somebody has to drop out for you to get the spot and nobody ever drops out of doing their showcase because that's your big moment. Whether it's 15 or 18 minutes of your show, all the presenters get to see it. 9-11 happens. All kinds of people drop out and they call me and say, you're first alternate. Do you still want to come? And I was like, okay, I guess, you know. And what was really fascinating about that moment in time is that people's sensibility and programming changed because they didn't want something heavy. So people who had already pre-booked Death of a Salesman or Wit or some other play that had a little gravitas to it were nervous that it wouldn't sell going into the next year. So that little 15-minute showcase for me of doing Wonder Bread years, which is a pretty sugar-coated 
a hopeful kind of outlook. Um, picked up all kinds of stray dates from all kinds of, I think the folks in Dayton, Ohio were the first to bring me on, but they brought me on something that was like a two-week sit down replacing the, the the cancer play wit you know it was one of those ones where i was like just lucky timing and that got me into the arts so to follow up on the on josh's question just to go a little further so after you have the successful conference experience and get picked up you know your show's getting bought um did that then encourage you to find more conferences or just keep going back to that one for a while? How did you then take the leap to really? I think I did that conference a couple of years. And by the way, the first year, some people gave me advice. They said, number one, you're not going to get any bookings. <laughs> like they, they go, it takes a while. Like it's a long, you know, turning ship in the ocean to get that first booking, which sometimes is 18 months out. And now I understand it from a business standpoint is that their year is already programmed and they're already looking at stuff that they saw last year. It's really hard to get into the cycle. But once I was in the cycle, I thought, well, I should at least attend this because my interest was not in getting more bookings. It was to build relationships in the area where people would be talking about this because comedy club owners and corporate events and those sorts of things, they aren't, they aren't talking about putting somebody into a theater. And I always like the live experience. And to be honest, in Los Angeles, they don't really support that kind of thing because they're very much TV and film centric. So a lot of the theater you see in the heart of LA, you know, not the big subscription house, but the smaller stuff is vanity productions of people trying to get discovered for film and television. So they're not really writing pieces to be produced as theater as much as they're trying to get discovered as a performer. Anyway, the, the Arts Midwest did offer me entree to towns like Chicago and Minneapolis that were much more theater-centric towns. And my content, which is very much Americana, was suited to the Midwest. So I began to block book and do consortiums and do things where I would go around Iowa or I'd go around uh, Wisconsin. And... I started to realize, okay, there's more to this. This is a real playing field. You have to learn it. And I did expand. I did begin to go to the Southern Arts, and I did begin to go to Western Arts Alliance and APAP every year. There was a time I was going to four or five conferences, which meant I had to kind of truncate my fall touring schedule to attend. So I began at that point, I thought, well, if somebody else isn't going to represent me, I'm going to have to teach the people I'm going to have to groom people that can represent me and be in these booths or go to these conferences so that I can get back to work. And I've, I've had a couple of amazing colleagues and, you know, they stayed with me for a period of time and then I would have to train somebody else or groom somebody else. And at, at one point I did have a representation. Uh, the road company represented the Wonder Bread years. But when I asked them, would you also represent the Bunk Bed Brothers or the Good Humor Men or other shows I was creating – that was like a, too big of a leap for them. So I go, well, look, if I have to be on the phone anyway, talking to these places, like there's no point in giving away the prize cow if you're not willing to take, you know, a couple of these other ones along the way. They taught me a lot, though. I learned a whole bunch about negotiating and tech writers. And I mean, there's so much to learn about the business of the business that having shorthand with presenters is I would say this, if anybody's listening that's an act, don't ever say, oh, I don't have a tech writer. I'm so easy. I'll do, I can do it with anything. I don't even need anything because it just drives the presenter out of their mind. 
because all I would like to know is what do you need? Do you need an amplifier? Do you need it? What do you need? You know, do you want a, a meal? Okay. Are you vegetarian? Like, they don't want you to show up and go, oh, except, oh, no, I need that. Oh, no, that's not quite what I need. Well, you know, but they act like they could do it with a flashlight and a Mr. Microphone. But, <laughs> you know, you're if so they right. Could, that. That's so your right. tech writer. That's mm -hmm. the point. If, that, if you can do that, say, I need a stool and a flashlight. Mm -hmm. And then the presenter will know what you're talking about. I think particularly bands are guilty of some of this where then they show up and they have a lot of backline and they need specific instruments and they need something tuned and they need, and also they're flying from different parts of the country. Like I always encourage acts, figure out what your average airfare is included in the travel price because a presenter doesn't want to know seven people are coming from different parts of the country. That could cost them $2,000 or more, right? Nowadays could cost you 3500 bucks. So nobody needs that surprise at the end of the deal. That's so important for presenters to know what to expect. You know, if you've got a team of people working with you as a presenter, your team wants to know what what's going on going into a performance rather than just saying, eh, we don't really know. We'll deal with it whenever they get here. That drives my tech team absolutely insane. There's an order to things that they're not aware of. So if you have Thursday night where there's nothing going on, your lighting team can do the hang do the focus. But if you wait till Friday when they come and you've got it all set up and now you've got microphones and they go, yeah, except we need a carpet. Oh, move all the microphones, move the speakers, move the monitors, roll out the carpet. Like, like it's just a good communication that you can have. And I, I also feel like you can do a thing. I had a really advanced lighting tech writer at one time for the Wonder Bread years. And I found it was really difficult because of the kinds of places we played, ranged from mom and pop places to indoor to outdoor to places that had all the lights in the world to places that had, you know, one light bulb, you know, lit with a light bright. You know what I mean? The, and, and that was a frustrating document for people because most of the conversation, well, we don't have a psych. Oh, we don't have this. We don't have that. So what we did was we scaled it down to writing the cues and saying, can you give us an autumn look? Can you give us a Halloween look? Something darker. We'll bring some gobos of a moon. We tell them what we have. But, you know, the light designer then, if I'm talking to you, Josh, I say, good humor men are coming. We want to have your main curtain down. Dealer's choice. Please make it elegant. We want to make, you know, we'll send you a gobo. We'll do something. And I think sometimes people love that creative element too, as long as you're telling them, your designer knows your room better than I know your room. We're just looking for ambiance. If I need a cue that is impacts the show, if I need a special at an area where I have a guitarist or I have a magician, you know, jugglers don't want lights up in their eyes, so they light differently. Pianists have a certain thing where they need a key light on the keys or they can't see it. You know, there's a shadow cast by something else. So there are things that are really critical to good performance. The audience is really never aware of it. But certainly a reasonable artist and a presenter should always be communicating about everything in advance that makes it a successful afternoon or evening. You mentioned uh, relationships a little bit ago about how important that was. Did you get some mentors right away or were there, did, were you just watching and observing other people? I mean, I certainly had the entree of a couple of people who had been in it for a while and they were very forthcoming with information about how to send things to people and what the patterns were. But I think what I did was I set out with no agenda to make friends in all parts of the arts. And I contend that these tech crews that I work with, 
you know, we're not the top show they've ever worked with, but they remember us because when I take a lunch break, I take the crew to lunch because it's really cheap for me to take four or five people out for pizza or sub sandwiches or something and get to know them a little bit. And the next time I'm coming through or I have a different show, I can get on the phone very fast with people. And that that's just about every venue we could play at. I could tell you, and we, we used to keep a very funny thing. The ones that were kind of in the middle that did okay job, we didn't really remember. Ones that were great, we remembered, and ones that were horrifying, we remember. <laughs> I, we used to have nominations for the best and the worst. Obviously, I don't want you to name names, but can you describe some of these, what made them the worst? I can I can describe one of the ones that was the worst, was where we got to a place, and I'll only just say Iowa, then it won't be smoking the place out too bad. But <laughs> we we got there for a 10 o'clock load in, nobody there, no tech guys, no lights, no now it's noon. We've already set our setup, and we're looking around. We go, you know what? Let's go up to the light board. Let's see if we can get the general light going or some fluorescence. Let's see what's happening. If we have to do this, lights up, lights down. We were there till 3 p.m. until a guy came in, and he was the TD and the lighting design guy or whatever, and he came in kind of harried in overalls and said, hey, I just – I had a real problem. <laughs> My chicken coop flooded and I couldn't. And it was his long story. And we go, okay, well, just as long as, you know, we can communicate before tonight. He goes, well, I just came to tell you I can't come tonight. Oh, my God. And we're like, why Why did you come to tell us that? Like, <laughs> this is the worst piece of information you can deliver. And he goes, well, I just didn't want you. I go, then you can go go work on your chicken coop because we got it. We, we're going to figure it out from here. So just to give you an idea of the standards of that moment in time, you kind of go, yeah, check the box for tough conditions. Anyway, there are so many terrific ones, but the terrific ones make your life easy. They're already prepped before you come. They, they add to it. I love these tech directors who go, hey, have you ever considered having this kind of moving light? Oh, no, go for it. Let's do it. You know, it's really, really fun when you're in the game with people who want to improve the stakes. They want to make it better for their audience. They have a standard that they work I love that kind of relationship. You started out as a performer, and I'm, so there was a lot of things you had to learn on the business side. What was the hardest thing for you to get your head around in the beginning? Well, I think part of it had to do with not negotiating a number, but understanding the bigger picture of the arts. And I may have mentioned this somewhere in my own podcast, but I will say I changed my perspective that I was in the entertainment business and realized I was in the real estate business because that's what a presenter is in the they are in the business of renting seats. And if a seat is empty, it's like an empty room in a hotel or an empty seat on an airline. When the curtain goes up, that, that's gone bad. And so that really, really changed my business perspective of how do I help my presenter friends fill those seats? And it comes in what kind of marketing materials I offer or what kind of radio spots I do or how much promotion that I can be available for. In addition... I guess I learned more and more about, okay, well, what do we do with those empty seats? Up until showtime, they have value. So do I cut a deal with a radio station to do vouchers or giveaways so now we can amplify quickly in a few days the remaining seats and maybe fill them with sales, you know, at, at, by giving away a handful of them? But not giving away tickets, right? Even giving away tickets, you don't know if that person's going to come and sit in it. But if you give a voucher and they have to come back to the box office, like those little nuances to me, that's the stuff I 
I love having all of those little puzzle pieces. And nothing frustrates me more than I show up and they go, well, we didn't really have much of a crowd. And I go, well, what did you do? What, what was your plan? And they go, well, you know, it's a baby boomer show. So that's people that were in the war, right? I go, no, they weren't in the war. They're like, they, they were born <laughs> after. No, I mean, and, and you, I go, oh, is that why we have five matinees that these people are 95 that you've invited? You know, and, and it's just so strange sometimes that, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate that in the arts there's budgets. And so maybe they don't have the right PR department or maybe they don't have a marketing thing, or maybe they took somebody that was a box office person and made them the advertising buyer, and they're a nice person, but they don't know how to cover their territory. And, I mean, it's it, it for all of us, it's a riddle that we should be trying to solve together. The presenter to me, the artist and the agent, should be cooperating. I learned along the way that isn't always the case. Agents are often in the middle of it, so they're making a deal. Everybody's fine. They're not always passing the information on to the artist. The artist is not always aware they've agreed to a meet and greet or any number of things. And, you know, so it, it really, it's like anything, teamwork, upfront communication, button things down, you know, the integrity of having things. You know, it gets dodgy when you go, why don't we have a deposit yet? Like, this is the night before the show. Something's wrong. You know what I mean? And those indicators are usually pretty clear, right? That that some something crazy is going on. But, I mean, I think the presenters, I, I take presenters over promoters uh, 100 to 1 because promoters don't own the building. Like, you can't even find a promoter if something goes weird. <laughs> At least presenters have an address and, you know, you know where you can come back to if you have a problem. But I, I would say that I would have... I'd had a 95% success rate with all presenters and a few oddballs or shysters or awkward things where they were, you know, counting the money funny or something. <laughs> and you go, I don't understand this. We're closing these numbers and this doesn't add up. Well, we counted every two for one ticket as one ticket. I go, no, that's one half price ticket. You know, like you can't present me something that doesn't add up. And I think nobody questioned some of those people in the past and they did it, you know makes it bad for all of us. Some of our listeners are new or they may even be students in an arts admin thing. They may not understand what you're getting at because there's different types of ways to work out the deal. Can you maybe just describe some of the ones that you work with because there's flat guarantee and then obviously you're talking about a back-end deal or, or some kind of split of the house. Sure. And and that is exactly, I think, what I was getting at is the hardest part to learn of this was the amount of ways that you can do it. I think it's a very creative way to do business. And I would say post-pandemic, the risk should be shared a little bit more so that a presenter doesn't have to be, pay a giant guarantee against whether their subscribers may not come back or may be nervous about COVID or something, right? So there is a reason to do um, splits and, and take other risks. But, you know, typically the flat guarantee is the handshake of I'll come for this much money. Doesn't matter if you give the tickets away or sell the tickets, you're going to give me that money regardless, right? The next step up is a percentage split. We agree to some percentage, 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, it doesn't matter. Whoever has the best situation there, let's say you have a, a musician artist that has a giant Twitter following and Instagram following, and they're not going to take, they're going to take a split and they might take 80% and you might get 20%, but they're bringing everybody in. They're taking the higher risk and they're getting the higher reward. 
and you don't have to do as much advertising or marketing. And that's a pretty handy deal for somebody like that. They make a lot more money than they might with a flat guarantee. Then there's a hybrid version where you pay some amount of risk. You pay $5,000 as a guarantee. And then after that money is recovered and maybe a negotiated expenses, which is another tricky area, but I feel like a place of high integrity where you have estimated expenses and you have actual expenses. So you work together to say, we believe this is what we'll spend on marketing, advertising, whatever. And you you have to be accountable afterwards. You have to say, here's our numbers for advertising. And it seems like it's a lot of work. But at the end, once you come to that number, you now have a split of the overage. And that split is also a percentage determined before ticket one is sold. And I think people, some people are afraid of these kinds of things because there's so much involved. But truthfully, if you do it well, it it can reduce your front-end guarantee. The risk actually gets shared by both parties and the reward gets shared by both parties. And so, I mean, I feel like that there's a lot of ways to go about that. And I do think that when you have a local act, right, or a regional act, somebody who's closer to you that doesn't have expenses of flights and hotels and ground and something, that split is probably a good way to approach it because you know if they have a following and you can give them a little bit more to bring their audience in. And if it's fantastic, you can do an annual Christmas show with them or an annual fall thing or something of that nature. We'd love to kind of take you back to the point where you're just dropping your props and starting to go out as a comedian, not knowing where you're going to go in the business. What piece of advice would you give yourself moving forward there or encouragement? And then we'll stop at another place in your history and I'll ask you one more question. Well, I guess the only piece of advice uh, I would give is that look at it as a craft. Don't try to be famous. Don't try to make a million dollars. Just get better and better at your craft. So it's pretty easy as a comic, a magician, a songwriter to sort of rest on your laurels of what you're doing. But if you want to be at the top of the business or you want to be somewhere that's not even on your radar, you have to set your sights on things and you have to Plot your way to it. Some people want to be on Broadway. Some people want to be in Vegas. Some people want to be a movie star. You can make it actually happen, even if the industry is not interested in you. People have done it, and time and time again, it's the tenacity and the hard work. But I think looking at everything you do as part of your craft. In conversations I have with artists on my podcast, Nate Bargatze, great comic out of uh, you know Nashville, he wants to be at the top of the pyramid. He will get there. Whatever it takes, he's doing it. And whatever road work, he's doing it, right? And if that means sleeping more, eating more nutritionally, getting his hair cut every Friday, you know, all of it is he's choosing it uh, like he like he's a superhero and he has to be ready for the moment. And I admire that more than anything because I think when I started, when we go back to that time, it was like lay on the couch until it's time to go to the comedy club. And like, I didn't really realize how much of that downtime is time that you can be creating, time you can be writing, time that you can be drawing in your sketch pad. It's a luxury when you have that time, but it is the time when you can prepare to build an arsenal for when you do make it. Because when you make it, the first thing people are going to say is, yeah, what else do you have? And if you don't have anything, they're just going to go to the next guy and go, oh, that guy's got two or three things underway. So just keep building, you know, building new stuff, you know, 
supporting your own point of view, that kind of thing. So let's hop back into Brian's time machine <laughs> and, and move forward to your first venture to Arts Midwest. And what advice would you give yourself first getting into the business end of the live entertainment industry? Okay, I'll tell you, but then you have to promise me we're going to go to the point where Brian built the time machine and I can get the plans. <laughs> I'm going to need one of these to go back and correct all the mistakes I've made along the way. So just the fact that you guys have one and you're not so quick to say, hey, on Sunday you can borrow our time machine. Um, <laughs> I think going back to that first art Midwest, I, I somehow wish I would have done it years before. I didn't really know there was an arts market. I didn't really know. I went to the theater, but I assumed the theater put everything on. I didn't realize there was a touring business. I didn't realize any of that. And it was a big aha to me. And, you know, it's kind of kooky how eclectic the arts are in that I had a booth and on one side is some kind of outspoken mime and on the other side is a, you know... Uh, Chinese monk troop that's building something out of sand and banging gongs. And I'm like, are we all in the same business? Like, this is, this is really weird, you know? And and I think walking around APAP, we know exactly that booth space that you're talking you do. about. You do. And I'm not saying that it's not amazing. I'm just saying, how do they fill this auditorium with this sand sculpture, right? And, uh, and different arts organizations and different conventions I went to had different personalities. So I would be in on the West Coast and it would be all dance troops and things. And I was like, oh, they're never going to have a comedian at this venue. I don't even know what I'm doing here. But I did begin to understand in doing the arts dine arounds and doing all of that, that at the core of all of those organizations, there is a person that represents sales. There's a person that represents marketing. And I found that by being friends with people who understood the power of the arts, that there are people I refer to as arts angels, you know, they are fast to refer you to places that do do your kind of work or have a certain integrity because it is the biggest and smallest um, group of people. Everybody wants everyone to succeed. You as presenters are going to tell somebody when you made a bonanza on making money on somebody, and you're also going to tell them, this act was horrifying and they, they sold no tickets. And that is a resounding thing that stays with you for the longest period of time. So a great showcase can last you five or six years where people still talk about you. And a terrible showcase can last you five or six years where they, even if you're just had an off night, they'll go, Oh, I saw something last year. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. So how you behave within this is ultimately all you can do, right? you, operate from a place of integrity. You do the best you can. You kind of work together. We're all trying to bring the audience some kind of experience that's uplifting and hopefully returns the money so that we can do it again. Uh, but there are times that there are eclectic acts who don't have the audience to make the money back. And yet the, you know, Christmas Carol or the, you know, Nutcracker will make a abundance of money that will afford that to happen in the summer. So I feel like that's all part of the fair play of us developing new and original content and finding our way through it and understanding that we do have a obligation to amplify voices that don't have a way to make their nut back. So it, it is really a unique industry. And I feel like the live arts business to me has so much more integrity than the film or television industry who does 
great work, but they think that they trump anything. They think they can pull somebody right out of a show and go, just cancel that tour because we want you in this movie. And it's really horrifying to me when they go, well, it's the Spielberg effect. It's like, yeah, but that's not a Spielberg show. You're, you're going to be on a game show. Why are you canceling this live event? The audience pays for ticket to see you work live. You should show up. It's your party. You're hosting it. And I mean, I guess that's the one thing I would, if there was something that I could do to stitch things together, it would be to get the film and television big dogs to understand not to go scavenging all of our artists and all of our events. Once they start to get hot, they take them away from us. You know. What is your favorite thing about the live entertainment industry right now? My favorite part about the live entertainment industry is that we offer the audience Something that we've only discovered through the pandemic is the, the the art of gathering. We gather for an event. We come together as a community. We have a contagious experience, whether we're laughing or crying or clapping. And we grieved that loss in a way that we didn't understand. We didn't understand that it wasn't about revenue. It wasn't about a lot of things. It was about the hope that the arts offer. And I feel like that's a unique thing. Binging on Netflix and sitting in whatever, yes, you can take in and consume content very quickly, but you cannot have the same experience as someone else unless you're at that music concert or at that comedy show and you find yourself impacted by it. We're not an audience until we leave. We show up as individuals and we leave bonded as a group. And I feel like that's something that shouldn't be overlooked because it's primal. It takes us back to the campfire where people gather and storytell. We're just doing it at a bigger campfire. So, I mean, I feel like that the arts will never lose that. It doesn't matter how advanced our technology gets. The, the single storyteller, the guitarist with the song, with the heart, is always going to draw us in. Even if they try to put it on our watch for us to watch, we're still going to want that beating heart. I think theater is the beating heart of the arts. Well, Pat, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for so many fantastic insights into not only your journey, but what you've learned along the way and, and how to conduct yourself uh, within the business. Well, I thank you. And Brian, I will... Email you my address, send the time machine as soon as possible. <laughs> but to be honest, I already did. send it to any. Oh, oh, you did. Oh, I will get to it in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I need to send the date I need it, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's the one drawback of borrowing a time machine. You've got to be home when it shows up. Well, Brian, thank you for bringing us back to present day with your time machine. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's it's about time we've had a, had a guest that, that called you out for not letting other people use that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Pat really knows and understands the audience for his show, which I really appreciated from a presenter perspective. He understands the content that he's putting forward. He understands who it's going to appeal to and thus can help presenters market it in the right way to target the right people. I think that just leads to a lot more transparency and conversation between an artist and a presenter in terms of what does this piece need to do for you? How do you want to market it? How can we work together to make this a successful event for you? That ties into like the real estate piece that he was talking about, about it's really about renting seats, right? If you're not filling those seats, that's lost revenue, lost income for an organization. Uh, I just really loved his dedication to like working with presenters and helping them fill those seats. And he does that by knowing his product so well. Well, and part of knowing his product so well for him is that, I mean, he is a writer and storyteller. Now he's this master of his craft in storytelling and writing. 
And that comes across really well because of how much he puts into writing the products that he has out there, that he knows them that intimately and knows his target when he's writing them. Um, as presenters, you know, we we hear a lot from agents, but we also hear a lot from self-represented artists. And, and I think that that journey is different depending on who you are and what your artistry is, what your constraints and your time are. But like you said, Josh, because Pat's such a great storyteller and he knows his story inside and out, he's also a great storyteller on the conference floor and in those emails that he's sending. And he really incorporates how to be a good storyteller into the business of the business. Yeah, Danielle, I, I agree. And Pat is really a really great guy all around. I mean, he's just a fun guy to talk with, but he's full of a lot of really great wisdom and, and information, particularly when he talked about uh, the different deal structures and, you know, about the riders and and uh, making sure you have one. I mean, that's an important one, too. We've talked about this on this podcast already, but there's sometimes artists will say, oh, I don't have a writer. I'm real easy. And, and Pat addressed perfectly why that's actually harder for us to not have a writer at all. So, I would like to see the writer with a flashlight and a, <laughs> and a right. Mr. Microphone, though. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> yes. One thing I liked about his, his story about how he got to where he is, he's like, well, I guess I need to write something. And he just did it. But then he didn't wait for that script to be picked up for some by somebody. He went and started performing it himself as a two-man play. Yeah, I think, Josh, to your point, it's just about honing your craft. Like, he through the whole narrative of his career, he was just honing his craft over and over and over again, going from the magic to the comedy to the writing to performing. Uh, so I think there's a lot of great lessons in there for people who want to just do a thing, right? And then people who really want to be professional artists is... You have to take it one step at a time and hone your craft and you will get there. He's also such an inspiration. And as Josh mentioned in, in the introduction, his Creativity in Captivity podcast is so incredible. If you haven't listened to that already, he interviews all kinds of creative people, not just within our industry, but in, in other industries as well. And it's so fascinating. And I've taken away so many things from from that podcast. And that's partly how you know we, in our early concept of putting this podcast together, uh, that was a big motivation, too, for some of us, was um, being inspired by Pat. Well, thank you guys for being part of this today. And thanks, of course, to Pat Hazel for taking time out of his touring schedule, his writing schedule, and his podcast to be a part of this with us. Uh, we really appreciate that and all of his knowledge that he shared with us. Uh, thanks for listening. And we can't wait for you to hear us again soon. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Life. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Wouldn't you hate it if one of your kids would out had outsmart you? I mean, now <laughs> well, they do, do all the time. Technology. <laughs> I know. I know. But oh. hold on. I'm having an Amber oh. Alert, which oh. I always like to have. <laughs> publicly on a podcast because then I can help find this person that's missing in Texas. Oh, 
Um, they must have just found them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was quick. Um, honestly, my phone is turned off. So that is Apple doing its magical. Wow. I know. For, it's pretty good. So if you're in a white Toyota, look out. We're coming for you. <laughs>